So um, we're almost at the end of our series of talks on uh, what we called the, the doctrines of the gospel. And the title for today's talk is Glorification Being Perfected. If I was going to give it a short and more snappy title uh, in the style of a Hollywood blockbuster, I think I'd just call it Endgame because this really is where the whole gospel leads up to. We've thought about some amazing outcomes of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, haven't we, over the last however many weeks it's been. Uh, how God's wrath has been appeased in the atonement. How we've been born again, regenerated as new creations. We've been redeemed, bought with a price. We've been sanctified, set apart as something special and for something special and we've been justified made perfect in God's sight just as if we've never sinned at all could there be anything more well yes because as David Woods pointed out in his talk a few weeks ago although God sees us as perfect in Christ we can see in ourselves and in our day-to-day -day lives we are far from perfect and that can't possibly be the end game. We often refer to Paul's confession of weakness, don't we, in uh, Romans 7. He presents himself as an example of all that's wrong with us, even after we've been born again. He said that he still had a sinful nature and that the sin living in him made him do things that he didn't want to do. He described his life as a constant battle between good and evil. And he said that he felt like he was still enslaved to sin, living a wretched life. And as you know, in um, 1 Corinthians 15, he goes further and says that if there's nothing more to being a Christian than the life we live in this world, despite all the blessings and spiritual experiences we can have, he said, then we are of all people to be pitied. So, in answer to my question, could there possibly be anything more? We might respond by saying, let's hope so. Because despite all the Christian blessings we can enjoy in this life, and despite all the assurances we have about our new relationship with God, and despite all the things that we can enjoy in the activities and friendships of the church community, this is not what God has saved us for. There is, in the words of our opening hymn, more to follow. And that's what our subject today is going to touch on. We're talking about the glorification of the believer. You and me, glorified. Now, I don't know if the idea of being glorified makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. As Christians, we usually try quite hard to shun any hint of personal glory, don't we? Any praise from others, any applause for what we've done. Our ambition always should be to live out our lives as humble servants. And that doesn't really sit very well with the idea of being glorified, does it? But glorification really is something that we can look forward to as long as we understand what it is and where it comes from. 
Now, to put it in context, we should talk first about the glory of God. Um, and that's where I was coming from when I said I nearly went to that hymn, How Great Thou Art, as our starting hymn. And it would fit very much with this part of my talk, the glory of God, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 is what the gospel's all about. In fact, he also says that the test of sound doctrine, which is what we've been looking at in these series of talks, the doctrines of the gospel, he said the test of sound doctrine is whether or not it conforms to the gospel of God's glory. First, let me read it. First Timothy 1, I'm just going to start at verse 10 or break in at verse 10. Um, he talks about the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I think the problem with what we're told about God's glory, um, and I say this with great reverence, is that the scriptures really just don't do it justice. They don't describe it adequately. Now that's not God's fault. It's because his word of necessity is constrained to things that we can understand or at least understand a little. When we describe something, we use words which are familiar to us, don't we? Um, when we use metaphors and similes to explain something again, we, we, we're describing something by comparing it to another thing that we already understand. And therefore, when God is trying to explain what his glory is like, he has to describe it in the same way. And although he uses the most expansive, majestic, impressive things that we can possibly relate to it really just isn't enough for example uh, psalm 19 it says the heavens declare the glory of god we're encouraged to look at the sky the millions of stars the sun and the moon and the clouds and the rainbow and and all of that and and to know that god created and sustains it all it, it really does inspire a sense of awe doesn't it but actually, God's glory is far greater than that. Likewise, uh, in response to Isaiah 6, where it says the whole earth is full of his glory, um, if we think about everything that God's made in this world, mountains, forests, oceans, canyons, every living creature, we might use words like splendor and majesty and wonder and beauty or we might say something is amazing these are all words which if you look up the dictionary definition of glory you'll find these words are all associated with the idea of glory but they just still don't go far enough and in revelation 21 uh, it talks about the heavenly city and it says that the glory of god gives it light and here um, as on other occasions, uh, God's glory is depicted as something which shines out. We're encouraged to imagine the brightness of a light which illuminates all of heaven. But honestly, what that light is really like, we have no idea. In all these things, we can see or imagine something of God's glory. 
but we can be sure that our best understanding and our, our best imagination is, is nothing compared with the reality of what God's glory is really like. Because our only frame of reference is our own experience. It's so limited, even when we've got our imagination at full stretch. It's not just the visual, um, the visually impressive things which um, glorify God, is it? It's not just the great things he's done. Um, there's also glory in the character of God, as we see in God's response to Moses when he asked God to show me your glory. Remember, on that occasion, God didn't point to the stars or the mountains or anything else in this world. On that occasion, God revealing his glory to Moses was about telling him about his character and proclaiming his name. It says in Exodus 33, uh, Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the Lord goes on as he passes in front of Moses and um, declaring his name. It's the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God and, and, and so on. He reveals his character as his glory. I think that's what the Apostle John was referring to in John chapter one, when he wrote about the glory of the Lord Jesus. When he wrote, we have seen his glory. Now, of course, according to Matthew 17, and I think it's also in Luke, um, John was one of those who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. When the Lord's face shone like the sun and his clothes became as bright as light, it says. But if that's all that John was referring to, you would expect his account of that occasion to be included in his gospel. In fact, I think it's strange that he doesn't mention it, unless actually what he witnessed on that single occasion was still secondary to the glory that John saw on multiple other occasions throughout the three years that he was with Jesus. His miracles, his teaching, his grace, and all the other aspects of the character of the Lord Jesus that John and the other disciples had such first-hand experience of. I think we get that in, in um, John 1, actually, um, because when he talks about the glory, it's in the context of, of Jesus coming into this world and living among us. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Another verse um, which talks about how God's glory is revealed in Christ is um, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Uh, that verse says, uh, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You know, Jesus didn't just point to God's glory like the Old Testament prophets did. Uh, lots of writers in the Old Testament pointed to God's glory, but that's not how Jesus revealed God's glory. He didn't just teach about it. 
even as a man. And even though his glory was mostly concealed in his life on earth, Jesus still displayed the glory of God. Because, of course, he never stopped being God. As we know, on one occasion, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. His identity as, as, as God never ceased, even though his glory was to a large degree as a man concealed. But as we've read, John could see that glory as could, as could others. Um, and how could the Lord Jesus not display his glory Hebrews 1 verse 3 is one of those verses that just takes us to another level when we're thinking about the glory of the Lord Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Now, earlier I mentioned 1 Timothy 1 verse 11 um, from which we can say that the doctrines of the gospel are about the glory of the blessed God. And we can put 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 alongside that. Uh, it talks about the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the glory of God can refer to the combined glory of the three separate persons who make up the Godhead. Or it might refer to their specific individual glories and they, they as, the, as individual beings, they have individual glories um, the glory of Christ, as I've just quoted. Or if you go to Philippians 2 verse 11, it talks there about the glory of God, the father. So they have individual glories. It's not just the combined glory of the Godhead, but whether we're talking about the glory of God together or the glory of the father or the glory of the son and i couldn't think of a verse that talks about the glory of the holy spirit because uh, actually his role is is mainly about glorifying the lord jesus um but nevertheless however whichever aspect of god's glory we, we're thinking about we still struggle to define it we still struggle to understand this glory for the reason i've already mentioned our finite minds our limited experience, our incapacity to fully comprehend it. So let's just say, knowing that this is a very incomplete and limited appreciation of God's glory, let's just say that the glory of God is everything about his majesty and his power and his creation and wisdom and character and supremacy and everything that makes us want to say, well, everything that makes us want to worship. In Exodus 15, Moses put it like this, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now, all of that was just to give us a little bit of context, context for our main subject, but it, it's a vital context because we, we can't talk about the glorification of the believer without understanding something of the glory of God, because any glory that we might have can only come from God, yeah? And looking at ourselves now, that's gotta be a future thing, hasn't it? Because there's not much of God's glory to be seen in, our day-to-day -day lives is there? 
Not really. And Romans 3 verse 23 is just one of many verses which describes that fallen, de-glorified state, aspects of which remain true even after we've, we've been saved. As you know, that verse says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it, 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 it goes on to talk about how we can be justified and redeemed um, because of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But sadly, it doesn't change our behavior as much as it should do. Being justified and everything we know about the Lord and what he wants from us in our lives and what delights him and what he, what he hates, it doesn't change our behavior as much as it should do. And it remains true, doesn't it? Of each one of us, we have all sinned and we continue to sin. Our lives continue to fall short of God's glory. Likewise, Psalm 14 talks about how human beings have become corrupt. First um, Corinthians 15 says our natural bodies are perishing. They're sown in weakness and dishonor. Philippians 3 describes our bodies as lowly. Um, the revised version um, uses the words a humiliation. Our bodies are a humiliation. And our current bodies are a humiliation, aren't they? When you think about how far we've fallen from Genesis 1. When God created mankind in his own image, when God gave us authority to rule the earth. I said um, a few moments ago that we live in a de-glorified state. And, and that's what I was referring to. The fact that when God made the first humans, they had glory. Because God had made them so perfect, they were the, the pinnacle of his creation. But they lost that glory when they invited sin into their lives. However, when we look back at Genesis 1, um, it'd be easy to sort of look back um, and see um, how far we've fallen um, as, a, as a, a source of discouragement you know, and, and focus on the humiliation that is currently ours. But I think actually if we, we look back at Genesis 1, we, we have reason to be encouraged because it gives us a little clue about what we can expect in the future, what the glorification of the believer might look like. Because in Eden, we see a hint of God's original intention. When he created Adam and Eve in his own image, perfect, immortal, able to have fellowship with him, walking with God in the garden. We see something which suggests that God always wanted us to, to share his glory, not just as observers, but as bearers of God's glory. Reflecting God's glory. And therefore, although it's a glory derived from God. We shouldn't be squeamish about the fact that in God's purposes, we will actually have a glory of our own. What I mean by squeamish there is what I was referring to before when I said that maybe the idea of glorification makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Most Christian thought is focused on God's glory compared with our humiliation. God's holiness compared with our sinfulness, God's power and our weakness, God's wisdom and our foolishness. God as creator and us as just the dust of the earth. And that's all true, of course. 
That's why we worship. We know our place. But that's not the end game. Now, to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that we'll ever have a glory of our own making. We'll never have a glory of our own merits. The glory that God intends for you and me is his work, not ours. And, and we'll always be worshippers. But the glorification of the believer, of you and me in the future, is not what happened to Moses. We read about it in Exodus 34 when he came out from the presence of the Lord and his face was radiant um, for a while until it faded. We're not talking here about a glory that's just by association. It's not about us, I don't know, I'd say this reverently, it's not about us catching some rays of God's glory and then just reflecting it um, in a similar way to the way the sun lights up the earth. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that through the gospel, we will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to transform us in such a way that we'll have an intrinsic glory of our own. What do the scriptures tell us about that glory, that glorification? Philippians 3, um, the, the verse I mentioned before, not only talks about our lowly bodies, it does so in the context of the transformation which is to come says, um, let me read you the, 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 um, the full verse, verses 20 and 21 of Philippians 3. It says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. When we are glorified, these bodies that we have now with all their weakness and imperfection and mortality will be transformed so that they will be like his glorious body. Verse 20 um, that we just read there says that it's something that we should be waiting for eagerly. And we get the same thought in Romans 8. Um, Verses 22 to 23. Let me just read, read those. Uh, it says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's saying that even as born again believers, as, as new creations in Christ, we're still part of that groaning. We're still part of that fallen creation. But a time is coming when our bodies will be redeemed and our adoption to sonship will be complete. Of course, we've already been redeemed and adopted into God's family, haven't we? Um, we know that. But there's still a sense, and there's, there's, we find this a lot in scripture, there are things which are true in part or fulfilled in part, but there is yet a more fuller and glorious um, thing to come. And 
Um, although we've already been redeemed and, and adopted um, in a spiritual sense, there's still a sense in which that work will be further completed and will be completed at a future time when the spiritual will be enhanced or um, maybe that's the wrong word, joined. The spiritual will be joined with the physical. And when the truth of us being sons of God won't just be something we read in scripture and, and know by faith, but it will be evidence in the glorification of our bodies. We will look like sons of God. We've got a similar thought in 1 John chapter 3, uh, another one where it makes it clear that we are, we are now children of God. You might say, well, it, how can it get any better than that? But John writes and says, no, but there is more to follow. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. I remember when we when we read about our future bodies being like the body of the Lord Jesus, we're not talking about we're not talking about being like uh, Jesus as he was when he was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. That's Hebrews two verse nine. We're talking about Jesus as he is now. As Hebrews two verse nine goes on to say when it says he is now crowned with glory and honor. One day as believers, we will all be with the Lord, won't we? In that place that he's preparing for us. That's his promise, and we, we know it's true. But it won't be like the king opening the gates of the castle to let the riffraff in. We'll, we'll, we'll not be there representing the dust of the earth. Sinners um, there only because of the grace of God. And that's true, of course, but I don't think we're going to spend the rest of eternity being reminded that we don't deserve to be there. We'll be there as glorified saints, holy, sinless, immortal. And with superhuman bodies that will have none of the imperfection of our current state. You and I are going to be made perfect. And that's what we're talking about when we refer to the doctrine of glorification. We'll be everything that God always intended us to be. And in that glory, we'll glorify the one who made us so. So my time's gone. Without me making any further comment, let me just finish with a final couple of readings. A uh, couple of readings which point to that future glorious day and they, they, they speak for themselves. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 54, Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
And then a final reading from Revelation 21. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. <laughs>